Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. I like to think of it as, as an adaptive set of responses that has gone over, crossed over to maladaptive. Okay, so you had these, these things that were adaptive and that kept you alive, and now we've crossed over to maladaptation, so how do we bring it back in? When a civilian enters any branch of the military, they go through a period of basic military training that's designed to change the way they think and act to turn them into a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, or coast guardsman. This is seen as an important time in the individual's life, critical for the proper transition from being someone not in the military to part of one of the greatest fighting forces on the planet. After a period of time in the military, however, there's little done in any branch of the service to help that service member transition their mindset to life as a veteran. As we often say here in the Change Your POV podcast network, after one leaves the military, they're never going to be a civilian again. And they're no longer a service member. They're this entirely different third thing, a veteran, with all the experiences, knowledge, strengths, and challenges that go along with that word. One of the most overlooked aspects of transition is a service member's mental health and wellness. If the veteran has their heart, mind, body, and spirit in the right place, and has a support network of family and friends to rely upon, then they're most likely going to have a successful transition. Those things are not in place. Things can get challenging. I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I'm going to take you through a veteran mental health boot camp to give you some advanced training for your brain. These episodes will cover the many different aspects of veteran mental health that I, as both a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor, see, experience, and support veterans with daily. I'm going to be joined by both veterans and mental health professionals talking about what you need to know about the stigma against seeking support, the different areas we need to understand, and provide some resources for when you think you might need them. Get up in the morning and out of the rack, because this is some information that could very well save your life. Welcome to Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp. So welcome back, folks, to this series of shows that we're going to be taking a look at how veteran mental health, specifically regarding looking at how some of the major concerns veterans face uh, kind of go beyond post-traumatic stress disorder. 
uh, and traumatic brain injury. As I talked about in the introductory episode in the series, uh, many think that, that veteran mental health begins and ends with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. Now, those are absolutely critical concerns that veterans face, uh, but there are other things that they experience that go way beyond that. Now, in order to look beyond PTSD and TBI, we, we first have to look at those concerns, and that's why I get asked the guests today to join me to take a look at PTSD, what it is, what it isn't, what it means, uh, and, and kind of uh, have a good conversation about that. So as I also mentioned, I'm going to be bringing on guests to talk about each of the aspects of veteran mental health that I introduced in the first episode. There are many, many experts on PTSD that I could have invited, but my guests today bring a great perspective on the topic. They have literally studied PTSD and its impact on our nation's service members. In April of 2017, they co-authored an article that many of you might have seen, both on the out online outlet The Conversation, but also republished by permission on Task and Purpose. Uh, the article, which is titled From Shell Shock to PTSD, A Century of Invisible War Trauma, provides an overview of PTSD from a research perspective. And I'm going to be linking to that in the show notes, which you can find once we go live. So I'm going to introduce my guests briefly and invite them to share more. Uh, Dr. Mary Catherine McDonald is, is an assistant professor of philosophy at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. She received her PhD from Boston University, her master's from the New School. Her most recent research examines combat trauma through the lens of phenomenology, psychology, and neuroscience ultimately arguing that these three fields are necessary for understanding the phenomenon of trauma. Uh, and both as a veteran and a clinician, I can tell you that I absolutely agree. Uh, in the summer of 2015, Dr. McDonald received a grant to complete a research study on the process of reintegration from military to civilian life. Uh, she also received grants to complete a research study on yoga as adjunctive therapy to combat veterans. Uh, she is also interested in feminism, specifically issues surrounding embodiment and epimistic authority, early modern philosophy, and the philosophy of mind. Uh, my other guest, Dr. Marissa Brandt, began teaching the history, philosophy, and sociology of science at Lyman Briggs College in Michigan State University. She completed her Ph.D. in communication and science studies at the UC San Diego in May 2013 uh, and lectured at the Department of Communication and Science Technology and Society program at UC San Diego. While at UC San Diego, she also co-convened the Center for Humanities Comics Studies Research Group, worked in the Culture, Art, and Technology program, and collaborated with the Veterans Affairs Hospital in La Jolla to study innovations in mental health care using digital media. She's also the vice chair of the Cultural Studies Association Working Group on Culture and War. She's a freelance writer, writing coach, editor, comics creator, DIY enthusiast, voracious reader of novels. And so, uh, folks, as you can tell, I think I'm going to be way out of my academic depth here with my, uh, my, my colleagues here. So, uh, Mary Catherine and Marissa, welcome. Uh, Mary Catherine, would you like to say more about your um, background there? Thank you. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I started looking at... Um, at post-traumatic stress and sort of issues surrounding veteran reintegration in 2009. Um, and that's not something that's usually tackled from a philosophical perspective, but um, it actually started, I was looking at narrativity. Um, so this debate in philosophy about how much our self-identity is constituted by stories, the stories we tell about ourselves, the stories that other people tell about us and things like that. 
And sort of simultaneously, um, I was seeing all these stories, and I remember in particular there was a front page story in the New York Times in 2009 about um, veteran reintegration and just sort of the trouble we were having. Um, and I had just started to get interested in the philosophy of psychology, um, and I just completely fell down a rabbit hole. <laughs> um, I started going to the International Trauma Conference, which happens to be held in Boston, which is where I was living at the time. Um, and I really just started going because I was like, okay, I just want to understand this better. I want to understand what trauma is, how this might fit in with debates about narrativity, if it's an example that shows us in the way, shows us, you know, some of the ways that narrativity um, can shatter, right? If you're, if you have a, a traumatic incident. Um, and what I found when I went to the trauma conference was that people were still debating about what trauma is what constitutes post-traumatic stress disorder and um, and why it's so difficult to treat, particularly in regards to combat. And so I just became fascinated with this issue of veteran reintegration because, I don't know, I just felt this pull, like we, we have to be, there has to be a better way, we have to be able to do this better. Um, and so I just started doing research and, and all these projects and kind of just started thinking about, okay, what can philosophy add to this conversation? Um, and in particular, phenomenology, you know, what can phenomenology add to the, this conversation? And um, and how can it change the way that we think about post-traumatic stress syndrome, or sorry, post-traumatic stress symptoms? Um, how can we rethink trauma? How can it maybe change treatment paradigms? How can we use philosophy to think critically about the way that we're thinking about trauma and the way that we're treating it? Um, and so it just kind of blossomed into this whole research plan. Yeah, this, and then I, this thing that you do, it, you know, it's, yeah. very, it's very interesting. And you talk about that and, and, you know, talking about narrativity and we have our story. I can see that an individual um, has a story of their life that they've built through their experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And that story of their life led them to join the military. And then something came along to disrupt that story and create a yeah. new story. And it's almost like a, a schism on a timeline. Um, yep. And then how do we integrate that experience into our story and then live this new story? Is that sort of what you're talking about? Absolutely. I think that can happen. And that's true of any trauma, right? So you right. have this, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And then you have this sort of interruption that shatters your idea of the future or your idea of yourself. But I think it's a it's particularly interesting when it comes to combat because I think that we have these deeply embedded ideas about what it means to be a soldier in our country, in particular, and um, and then you go to war and you have this and I think that that's um, it, what I'm looking at right now actually is training how this sort of gets reinforced in training this ideology about what it's like to go to war and what combat is going to look like and what your role is going to be and then you go to combat and it may look very different than that. So I think this can also make reintegration really difficult because you weren't just telling a story about yourself, you know, that gets interrupted by trauma, but you were telling a story about who you were going to be as a soldier. And then you, you met combat and it didn't necessarily look the way that you thought it was going to look because you know, technology has changed and the way that we engage is very different and it changes every time we have a new war and things like this. And then you have to um, kind of figure out how that fits in. And there's no, there's no like 
paradigm for that. Right. You know, there are, and, and I think that's, and I definitely want to come back to that because I have a great experience about the theoretical concept of war versus the actual um, reality yeah. of, of combat. Um, but I want to be able to, to give uh, Marissa a chance to talk a little bit about, um, maybe a little bit more after I didn't uh, talk about in your uh, introduction, or, or how did you get into this? So I got into this... Um in uh i don't know kind of a also sort of surprising way so i was uh I, when i came to start my graduate program in communication and science studies i knew i was very interested in the politics of, of mental health care and treatment and i was especially interested in um cultural conversations about uh psychiatry and technology and for you know, most of the past several decades when we've talked about psychiatry and technology, it's usually been in the terms of psychopharmaceuticals. Um, and when I started kind of just casting my net widely to see what, what was an interesting way to think about these uh, issues while I was doing my dissertation work, um, which I started my grad program in 2006, uh, I started to notice all of these stories about veteran mental health care, and I would see basically two kinds of stories, right? I would see these stories about um, veterans coming home and the way that they were framed um, in terms of often, you know, criminality and, yes. and suicide and um, all these kind of negative sto social stigmas. And then I would see all these stories that were like amazing new innovation in PTSD treatment, right? Um, and these kind of celebrations of these new technologies. And so I was wondering what's going on there? How do we have this disconnect, right? We have a technological enthusiasm and apparently all these wonderful things on the horizon. And yet we have... Um, all of these, uh, you know, this all this concern, right? The problematization of the veteran, and being in in San Diego, this was uh, this was very much a, an issue of of my community, right? right. Um, yeah, there's San a naval 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 and marines, a large naval and marine corps presence in San Diego. Yeah, huge, and the the VA system down there has, um, I think, three or four hospitals, and they consider themselves to be the the flagship VA system. So I did a a, a couple different projects, um, uh, trying to think about this stuff. And and one of the the sites where I got really interested in the technologies being developed was in the area of digital media, which was very convenient because I was already studying communication. Um, so they like that. And as a communication scholar, you can do really fun things in thinking about communication technology, like thinking about what kind of models of the self, right, are actually built into these technologies, what ideas about what it means to be, um, to be a person, to be healthy, right? Uh, um, trying to think of good examples, but you know, like the idea of we just think about a cell phone, right, is premised on the idea that we want to be connected to people far away from us. Um, but I got really interested in, um, in particular, uh, a project that was being developed uh, a couple hours uh, of I-5 at the University of Southern California called um, Virtual Reality Exposure Therapy. Yep. That's uh, under a few different names. Um, 
one system's called, uh, it used to, the system I looked at was called originally virtual Iraq slash Afghanistan. And then they remarketed it under the acronym brave mind. Um, yes, it's an acronym, <laughs> the battlefield research, accelerating virtual environment for military individual neuro disorders. Um, and I just kind of became uh, fascinated with, with that project, which we can talk to, uh, about more in depth. And then I also spent um, and spent uh, about a year and change um, up in that lab studying what they did, how they came to understand what PTSD was or did not <laughs> always understand what it was, um, but grappled with that as a way of, of creating these immersive simulations of traumatic experience that are really the cornerstone of that intervention. And the other thing I did was I spent um, a few years going to a weekly uh, PTSD training seminar for uh, the clinical psychologists and psychiatrists who were um, doing their residencies at the VA in San Diego. And I got to see how they get trained and how they understand um, what they're doing when they're, when they're treating PTSD, what they understand to be PTSD. So that's, uh, and, and I'm hearing really kind of two very different uh, approaches to the same problem. Mary Catherine, from a very internal, how is my narrative displayed to the world? Um, how is my, my combat story essentially from inside to out, uh, but the Marissa from, from outside to in, for your perspective, the, the digital view and just how, how sort of we absorb maybe the, the, the concepts of, of those kind of things from exterior to interior? Yeah, well, how how developers and innovators and philanthropists and people who see PTSD as, as a problem that they want to solve, how do they conceptualize that problem and how does that get materialized in their interventions? And I think thinking probably thinking my work against Mary Catherine's work can probably help us think of a lot of ways that there's a disconnect right. between that kind of technocratic but often very benevolent, well-meaning view versus what may actually be going on with the complexity of people's experience. And I, I see that in in the veterans. Um, again, as I'd mentioned before, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts um, in, in the, the Change Your POV podcast network that I'm on now. Veterans are talking about trauma. They're talking about PTSD. They're talking about these issues uh, but there does seem to be a disconnect between them and the clinical mental health uh, profession providing resources for that. So um, I really think that, that both of you bring a great perspective about that. So let's talk about PTSD in particular. And, and you know, I guess, Mary Catherine, if you could start us off, um, the article uh, really talks about sort of the, the history of PTSD. And a lot of veterans I know, we talk about soldier's heart in Civil War, we talk about shell shock, we talk about all these things that people thought it was, but you went in, in greater depth in the article. Yeah, I think a lot, what a lot of people don't realize is that we've been talking about PTSD, you know, I'm putting this in quotes, but you can't see me, right, um, since the 1800s, um, and um, Freud and Breuer and, and, and company, right, all those, all those guys, um, were pretty close to write about, <laughs> about trauma, right. you know, uh, and I think that's something that has gotten forgotten because people, you know, like to make a very blanket statement about psychoanalysis and about Freud and, and just say, well, you know, Freud has been debunked and, and that's, 
and that's that. But um, if you read studies on hysteria, um, the the way that they define Freudenbreuer, that is um, trauma, is very close to what we have in the DSM right now, which I think is really fascinating. So I think it's important to look at the historical arc um, and and kind of interrogate what that arc might mean. So one of the things that um, I've done some research on recently is the way that um, our conception of PTSD might be gendered in a negative way and how it might sort of import um, ideas of like femininity and weakness. So in other words, to have post-traumatic stress disorder is to be weak because the original sort of patients um, of hysteria, which is now PTSD, um, were all women. And so it was, it was thought to be a, a, a disorder that, that originated in the uterus. It, it could only affect women. And then it became an issue of categories because men started coming back from World War I and they had the same symptoms. So it was like, well, what is this? Right now, now we can't. It's obviously it doesn't come from the the uterus because men have it and they don't have a uterus. So how does how do we figure this out? And so, and nobody really thinks about that history. But I think it's important because we have to think about ways that we've sort of like inherited negative um, connotations and that ways that we might still be kind of ways that those negative connotations might still be around. Um, and so in the article, we looked at Lewis Yeland, who's just one example of somebody who used um, a really brutal method of treatment under the sort of theory that if you had PTSD, if you had shell shock, um, it meant that you were suffering from, you know, an astounding weakness of character and you just needed to be snapped out of it. And that and and that was strengthened by this fact that some people would come back from the same you know, Marissa and I could go to the same exact combat zone, get the same experience, and I could come back with PTSD and she could come back and be fine. And so, you know, that that was reconciled by saying, well, you must be suffering from, you know, something in your character because why can you have something that Marissa doesn't have even though you've had the same experience? Um, and I think that those kinds of ideas, even though we like to think of ourselves as very far away from Yeland, are still around. And I think that's why the philosophical perspective in particular is so important, not because it should replace the scientific, but because um, it, it can have that critical eye toward treatment methods that the sciences don't always have. Um, so that we make sure that we don't have these torturous methods Still. So, so that really makes sense. It, it, it's not a psychological um, disorder, or, or it wasn't considered back then. It was considered a moral weakness. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah. It was considered a, really a moral deficiency, um, maybe as like an intellectual deficiency, and people with just lower IQs were, were considered mentally ill. Um, and yeah. so it was a, 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 a you know, way of looking at it. Um, but, but Marissa, we've, we've come beyond that. I think um, and it maybe not you're right Mary Catherine not as far as maybe we should um, but now we see it as both psychological even neurological how do you think we got from from that moral deficiency standpoint to maybe even where we were in the early 80s to 90s and today oh that's a, a complicated 
complex history. Um, I think one one little piece of it that's kind of interesting is that uh, after World War, I believe after World War One, and the revelations about um, people like Yeland who were um, you know, submitting soldiers to um, to these really brutal treatments because they felt that basically they needed to submit their will to a higher authority um, as a way of, of reestablishing their masculinity, right? The masculinity of the doctor would be what would get the, um, the veteran in line. And actually, um, I, I don't, I think it was another person, Warreg, um, who was uh, accused of war crimes and Freud was asked to, to testify about what he thought of this and Freud actually says oh the problem is is not that war is a bad person it's that he misunderstands what trauma is mm-hmm. and um, in the 19 teens uh, you know uh, Freud was starting to become kind of a little bit of a celebrity in in the US um, and the the American um, psychological apparatus uh, was at first very interested in thinking about how to use psychoanalytic concepts to reconceptualize trauma um, and started to, and took on, one thing that got taken up was Freud's idea that you couldn't actually be traumatized in adulthood. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had to be traumatized at some point during your uh, earlier development. And it was this reawakening of a trauma that um, was would cause the difference between, say, me and Mary Catherine responding very differently to different experiences, which is why we have this stereotype of therapy as tell me about your mother. Yeah. No, right. it's, uh, and that, which still there have been people who argue, who, sorry, who still argue that in the, in the late 1990s. Yes. I mean, and that yeah. was the, especially in the 80s and 90s, there was the whole repressed memory movement mm-hmm. um, and, and, and awakening repressed memories and things like that. And it's great that you brought that up, Marissa, because I, I write that very clearly in, in some of my, it's not about your mother, unless your mother's the problem, then we could talk about your mother. But, <laughs> but rarely am I talking with veterans that I work with about their mother. Um, and it, it does surprise me in, in as, as many things as Freud got right. He, he talked about neuroplasticity, you know, decades before it was actually discovered. But then there was a heck of a lot that he got wrong too. Um, but but then moving from from where where Freud was, and then how it really developed in the '70s, you know, after the post-Vietnam era, um, is when really they started talking about okay, this isn't just something, or is, this isn't just you know a, a condition. This is something psychological. So, um, can you talk about how it first became a diagnosis? Yeah, so um, so the, the DSM, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, uh, I, well, I'm trying to remember the dates. For, I think the first one was like 1956, um, uh, and the second one I want to say was 64. So the first one had this thing called uh, gross stress reaction uh, as a diagnosis, which could be used for things like um, people returning from from war, um, but in 1964, I believe, when the second edition of the DSM came out, they took that out. Um, uh, and the the theory is that this is probably because um, there wasn't anybody who had worked with veterans in part. Um, 
when that edition was coming out. But in uh, so there was a, a real problem in this in the late '60s and early '70s because the military um, uses the DSM uh, as its own diagnostic manual as well, and uses those categories. So what we saw happening um, in uh, in the '60s and '70s was veterans were coming home, um, and there was nothing that clinicians could give them in terms of the diagnosis that could attribute their war experience, um, their problems to their war experience. So they were getting these diagnoses like, um, you know, personality disorders, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, um, all over the place and getting treated according to the, the rationales of those treatments. And one of the people that's credited with um, really making a huge change in that was, a, a, I believe, a social worker in Boston named Sarah Haley, who started, um, whose father had been a war veteran, and who, when she started working with um, veterans in the VA, realized that what they, what was happening to them, wasn't um, wasn't some other thing, right? It was it was not some pre-existing condition, but it was something that could only really be explained by the the trauma of their combat experience. So she and some of her colleagues started to put extra notes on people's um, uh, medical files saying combat related, basically, and gathering this information that there wasn't any formal process to gather. But over time, um, Sarah Haley, along with, um, you know, there were groups like Vietnam Veterans Against the War that started meeting and, you know, separately and talking about their common experiences. And, and they had rap groups where they would discuss um, what their war experience was like and what kinds of um, issues they were suffering. Um, and they started allying with with other clinicians who were um, uh, amenable to to this interpretation. People like Robert J. Lifton, um, Haim Shatan, uh, Jan Barry, uh, who I think was also a veteran. Um, and the this group started to work together to really create uh, infrastructures for knowledge to gather information about veterans to. Um, they, one of the big uh, surveys was called the Vietnam Veterans Generation Study, mm -hmm. and they surveyed thousands of veterans about their experience until they could make a case to the American Psychological Association um, that this we needed something in the DSM that would account for these experiences. Because if for no other reason, um, without that diagnosis in the DSM that doesn't say this is a pre-existing condition but says this is actually a war injury, you couldn't get disability compensation, right? You couldn't get uh, any kind of formal acknowledgement in addition to the issues of stigma, right, that um, people would, would have these uh, real issues getting their medical treatment paid for or being treated like they had a disability like anyone else. Who, um, whose ability to work is compromised through uh, uh, service-related sacrifice. Yeah, and, and that's definitely and, and still a challenge. Um, I, I like to, well, I don't like to, but I often do uh, give the explanation. My father was a Vietnam veteran in, in 68, 69. 
much of the reason why I joined the military and, and even perhaps why I, I pursued mental health. Um, and so uh, before he passed away, he was 100% service connected uh, for, uh, for PTSD and some other injuries that he sustained. But that only happened in February of 2014. It took us mm -hmm. nearly 50 years to be able to um, uh, get to that point of being able to, to, um, uh, to really even acknowledge and to separate it out because it is this kind of uh, a tangled web. Um, it, it's not just one particular thing. And, and so, Mary Catherine, as far as maybe getting it into the DSM, um, it's in, the, the concept of PTSD has even evolved since then over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And I think it's still evolving. And I think, um, so I was kind of part of the, I mean, I was a, I was a witness to some of the, the arguments about the most recent iteration of the DSM, which just was published in 20. 13? 13, yeah. It was a 2014, yeah. The DSM-5, um, which had a couple of changes in, in PTSD, and there was this big argument about whether or not PTSD should be reclassified as post-traumatic stress injury rather than post-traumatic stress disorder because it's one of the only um, disorders in the DSM that is caused very directly by an external stressor kind of yeah, so in, in that's that's really interesting. There's a lot of people, I as a clinician, I recognize it as a disorder. A lot of people want to drop the D, right? Um, yeah. That, they, you know, make it post-traumatic stress syndrome or PTSI, as you had mentioned, or things like that. Could you talk to us about the difference uh, between what, what maybe the, the disorder and, and maybe not a disorder? Yeah, so I think that the um, one of the things that people are really arguing about there is that, um, one, it's that you have this, it's not sort of an organic or biologically based Ill, disorder or illness in the way that some um, mood disorders might be or schizophrenia might be. It's not um, something where you have a chemical imbalance in a, in a clear way. Not that any sort of diagnostic is, is as clear as that, but to kind of make that, use that as an example. Um but that you have this external stressor and so that, that people want to draw a distinction between that kind of, you know, you've gone through this experience and this has caused this, this, this set of symptoms. And so that's different than having this thing that sort of occurred in you because of this chemical imbalance or something like that. So there's that side of it. Um, and then there's the stigma, right? So particularly with um, the population of combat veterans, um, you know, nobody wants to be labeled with a disorder, right? Especially because, you know, they've just gone and done something that they feel like is something that required a, a sacrifice and they may be feeling shame about whatever, you know, we could talk about shame for two hours. Yeah, um, uh, and, you know, it might just not have lived up to their expectations and, and, you know, all of these things. And then, you know, they come home and I think, you know, phenomenologically speaking, a lot of the symptoms that they have, if you take hypervigilance, for example, are the symptoms that they were trained to have that made them good soldiers. Yes, and then you take them out of the situation and then they have those same symptoms and they can't shake them. And all of a sudden those symptoms make them have a disorder. And I think that makes people in that population in particular less likely to seek help. Um, and so I think the, the thought behind changing it to injury was that people would view it more along the lines of sort of, 
uh, a bodily injury, right? So they wouldn't feel shame about having this diagnosis. And so they would be more likely to seek help and less likely to um, suffer in silence. And then this would hopefully mitigate some of the, um, you know, some of the suicide numbers. Well, I can tell you that um, that veterans don't need that much of a reason to avoid mental health treatment. So any reason's a good reason. So in in my viewpoint, taking away the disorder piece would say, oh, well, it's not a disorder, so I don't need to get help. Um, You know, this is another way of of a veteran saying, well, it's not really that big. It's just a natural reaction. And it is a natural reaction. Um, It's also an, an abnormal natural reaction or a negative natural reaction. Um, that uh, that veterans can can definitely uh, manage. I like to think of it as as an adaptive set of responses that has gone over crossed over to maladaptive. Right, so you had these these things that were adaptive and that kept you alive, and now we've crossed over to maladaptation. So how do we bring it back in? Yes, that's yeah, not, yeah, that's a that's a great uh, way of of framing it. It worked well in one environment; it doesn't work well in the other. I've I've written uh, on my blog about the the paradox of the veteran's emotion was when I was on patrol in Afghanistan, anger was necessary. It was it was the fuel. Right. I I wanted my my guys and girls to to be on edge and be on on hypervigilance. And so those emotions, those those thoughts that we engaged in when we were in combat, they're not effective here when I'm standing in the checkout line behind the, the nice lady who writes a check. Similarly. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I, I didn't want people, you know, having don't put pictures of mama and babies in your helmet, right? Leave that concern, yeah. that care, you know, that mm-hmm. that that cherishment. Leave that for the the base, the fob. Out here, I need your head in the game, and so it was really more of a suppression of the things that would be beneficial here, um, mm-hmm. in in at home, you know, connected to family, being loving and caring. They were actually a detriment when we were deployed. Um, mm. And I think veterans, uh, especially the veterans that I work with, have not really had a chance to be able to adapt back to an environment and, and sort of uh, learn how to regulate their emotions. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. And I think that a lot of that is because people, um, I think a lot of this is this, it's our fault. It's the citizen's fault because people come home and we think like, what's your problem? You know, you're home. Right. So you're this is what you wanted. You're home. Now you're out of danger. So just adapt. Right. You adapted to combat. Why can't you adapt to home? But we need to provide people with better methods of doing that, because compartmentalizing in the way that you're talking about is not easy for everyone. Like it's not it's not easy to just say, like, okay, I'm going to just leave that there in combat and come home. Some people can do that with no problem, but other people have a really hard time and then they get met with what's your problem? Why can't you get over it? You're home, you're safe. Why can't you understand that? And I think this is what the phenomenological brings in. That's so brilliant. It meets the patient where they are. So instead of saying like from above, you know, this is wrong. Your perception is wrong. It says, okay, what is your perception? How can I understand it? And then let's go from there. Um, yeah. So that, and and that brings me back to, to you, Marissa, the way that say individuals or society or the way they communicate that message of just come back from combat that Mm -hmm. that fits I think along with the the things you were talking about before is how the message is delivered of hey become well 
Yeah, well, as, as you were speaking and, and talking about um, compartmentalization, I was also thinking about um, not just the, these messages that you, you need to come become well when you um, come home, but also the, the kind of confounding situation that media creates for veterans who are deployed, right, who, um, unlike past, many past generations, um, they can Skype home. Right. Yes. They can text yes. home. They, it's not just a picture in the helmet. It's a picture on your phone. And maybe that picture is something that happened to your kid when they were at school today. Right. Maybe that picture is a uh, dear John letter. Right. Um, there's all these ways that um, there is not a clear line between um, home front and battlefront that can create additional stressors, right? Um, uh, when people are, are deployed um, and then to come home, you know, and then those are things that they often don't have, you know, control over because they're, they're far away. Um, and then, yeah, come home to not just uh, expectations that they're supposed to um, just drop everything, but also a lot of images of the troubled vet right? All of our movies about veterans are about PTSD. Uh, I did a content analysis a couple years ago. I, I just randomly um, selected uh, several dozen stories under the search term veteran, uh, homecoming, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. And 75% of my stories outside the week of Christmas mentioned PTSD and PTSD symptoms, wow. right? <laughs> so there's a, a sense that, you know, even if you're expected to be normal on, on the one hand, you're also not expected to be normal. Right. And there's that stigma of, of people waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> I don't know if that answers no. any one question, yeah. but just to kind of complexify yeah. the, right. the message that get disseminated and, and i think that's that goes back to the idea of much of what the communication is in the media about veteran mental health is centered on ptsd mm -hmm. i get this idea of it was very important to call it something and then immediately after we called it something it became that thing it became everything that the veteran is 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 uh, concerned with and, and going back to the case conceptualization of all of it, you know, is the, the whole circle is PTSD instead of it just being one slice of it. Right. Is, I don't, I guess, believe it's beneficial. I can't even formulate the question is, I, I'd i like each of your opinions on the focusing on PTSD outside or, or in the whole total framework of veteran mental health. Well, I guess, I guess I'll start with that. Um, so, so when PTSD was originally conceptualized by um, people, like I was talking about earlier during the Vietnam veteran movement, those um, the the clinicians that were really that were working with the veteran community um, had very much a social justice agenda, and they felt that what they were doing with um, creating this diagnosis was kind of treating, uh, speaking truth to power, right? To say war, war injures people and this is real and the government and the military need to be accountable to this even when those um, injuries are not uh, visible. And um, 
in in uh, kind of subsequent, but but their their only way to get this made visible to the um, to the military and to the relevant institutions was through medicalization, right? Was through inclusion in this DSM to make it, and, make it a, a path, pathologize it, basically. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And um, the thing is, it was maybe a little bit bad timing uh, for their purposes because the DSM was going under this radical shift where they were shifting from Freudian conceptualizations and these kind of other kind of models of self to um, a very uh, symptom-based way of thinking about mental health disorders as you know, you just group people based on the cluster of symptoms that they have, um, and uh, and and the issues of um, meaning or complexity really get erased from from a lot of that. Um, and so, I'm like, <laughs> you remind me of the original question because I no, I was well, going for it. No, you're doing great, but I just the the idea of the the focus of PTSD and and how it's it's you know it being focused on that is that beneficial, uh, but I ah. hear you talking about um, moving from the philosophy the the philosophic uh, understanding of what trauma does to an individual, um, moving to a more medical model, which which both of you yeah. and your co-author wrote in the article. So, so with this, um, this move to the DSM and the symptom-based model, um, which was also another thing that was a big movement happening near that time is the rise of, of cognitive behavioral psychology. You get um, people developing interventions that, um, where the diagnosis is based on a checklist, right? And your measure of whether or not someone get has gotten better is based on a checklist, um, right? It's kind of like black boxing in some way, the intervention. And um, because of that, yeah, all, all these other kinds of complexities, right? Things that it's not easy to make a checklist about, um, uh, you know, it's very easy to, how many nights have you not been sleeping, right? Um, how would you rate your anger, right, on a scale of one to five, right? Um, these things are, are easy to measure. And the interventions that conceptualize um, trauma along a, um, a fairly kind of easy to intervene path, right? This person's having these cognitions, we're going to give them these cognitions. The person is afraid of these stimuli, so we'll expose them to these stimuli until they're no longer exposed, uh, are very easy to operationalize in a, in a medical model. And that's basically the only part that remains in our current definitions of PTSD, um, are the parts that are able to be kind of measured in, in these ways. Do you want to speak to that too, Mary Catherine? Yeah, I'm going to say something more controversial, but <laughs> but uh, but along the same lines, I just I just don't want to put these words in your mouth. <laughs> so, if you go back and you read Lewis Yeland's um, hysterical uh, disorders of warfare, what's I think especially chilling about it is that there is no doubt in his mind that what he's doing is beneficial for those veterans. You know, and he's shocking them in the throat and he's torturing them and he's doing these terrible things. But he is 
but they're but they're getting better right the boxes are being checked like just like you were talking about you've got these symptoms we've got the symptoms squared away and then <laughs> the symptoms are going away the veterans are walking out of the clinic so they're getting better and so my main worry is about reductionism, right? We're taking this incredibly complex phenomenon and we are reducing it to the set of symptoms. And to some extent, that is obviously necessary, right? But what I think we should always sort of return to is what I call a prismatic view, right? The one that looks from more than one perspective and takes those perspectives all into account rather than just says, okay, well, screw neurology let's or neuroscience, let's talk about philosophy or screw philosophy let's talk about psychology or psychoanalysis or whatever we need which is why Dwayne I like your your conceptualization so much better because it's so much more fleshed out and and prismatic in that way it takes it takes all the pieces um together because I worry that if we we think about combat as having one injury right so if you go to combat you have one injury then we have two problems one is that Anyone that has any complaint when they come back gets labeled with PTSD, which is where um, we're at right now in, in many exactly. ways, right? So it's, right? Yeah, I mean, both both society, so uh, according to society and according to maybe the Department of Veterans Affairs or, or diagnostically. Absolutely, yeah. I just did um, a, a sort of a, a large um, study um, that we're just finishing writing up right now that had 250 participants and it was about reintegration, the phenomenology of reintegration. And, um, almost everyone said, you know, I, I, I came back and I reported this, you know, even just as a, a story of something that happened in combat and boom, you have PTSD. Here's your, you know, bottle of pills or whatever. Here's, you know, and I, I worry about that because it's not only that it's not one injury, but there's not one treatment that's going to work for everyone. And Dwayne, you know this because you have a practice and you know that that's not how it works, right? Um, but I think, and here's the scandalous part, we are advocating for prolonged exposure therapy as if it's going to help every single veteran. And it doesn't. It wasn't built for that. That's not what it, that's not what it was theoretically you know, imagined to do. And we've put a lot of money behind it. And there have been veterans who've been speaking out and saying, hey, this was actually really torturous. And we're just saying, you know what? Science has the power. You had a bad experience and you just have, you know, some other personality disorder, right? Which is what happened when David Morris wrote his book, The Evil Hours. He was just cast aside by science. And I think that's really scary. Which is not to say that, that PET doesn't work for some people. It for sure does, and it's evidence-based and whatever. But I think if we have this reductionism, then we, I think things can get really scary. That's my worry. Well, and, and I don't know that it's entirely scandalous because I happen to believe with you, uh, believe you uh, and agree with you, uh, Mary Catherine. I, I, I firmly do believe that if an individual, it's, it's a veteran, but if an individual is if their sole concern is post-traumatic stress disorder from a single event or, or something like yes. that, um, then prolonged exposure therapy does work and it is evidence-based very, very well. Um, right. Same thing with, with uh, CBT, EMDR is another thing. Yeah. If, if, if that is what the veteran is only, their only concern is, then yes, it is very, very effective. Um, and I have uh, colleagues that swear by it. Um, mm -hmm. however, like you said, either, and this is what we're told is if it doesn't work for your client, you, the clinician are doing it wrong. 
um, or mm-hmm. the client is is not yeah. uh, you know or, or that's not what it is. Um, as as I've been talking over these last six months or so about this uh, conceptualization, I, I showed it to a veteran one time, and we just kind of walked through it. And I was saying, is this um, something uh, that makes sense? And he was like, "You're kidding me!" For the first time, because he had been told PTSD, PTSD, PTSD. He said, my explanation of moral injury was much more in line with what he personally felt like he had. And he yeah. was like, what is this moral injury? I had one veteran one time that said, um, once once he read um, uh, uh, Litz uh, in, at all, their, their description of it, he was like, I feel like Benjamin Franklin who just decide, discovered lightning. It, yeah. It's always been there. It's just now somebody put it in words for me. Um, and mm-hmm. so, no, I don't think that's scandalous at all. I'm right on the same page. Some people get really fired up because that's, well, Because it's, in, and this is in my experience, in, and in this conceptualization as we're talking about that, nobody's going to be an expert in every single thing. There's going to be people that are, are very familiar with um, interventions for substance abuse, and they're not working with family systems. And then there's going to be individuals who are very neurologically based that right. are, are not familiar with maybe really existential psychology and things like that. And so if we are to ensure that the veteran gets the best care, we should get them to someone and you know, go from the general to the specific. Hey, this is your concern. Let's uh, let's help you out. Now, this is uh, this has been a great conversation. I definitely I mean, we're, we're coming up on an hour and I think we've only scratched the surface. There's so much more. I think that we could talk about this and and I, I really appreciate uh, both of your insights on on really PTSD and and how it's evolved. Um, I'd like to give each of you, you know, a couple minutes maybe to, to wrap things up or maybe something that, that we've talked about that, that you think would be beneficial for uh, further reflection. Uh, Marissa? Uh, well, I think one thing that's uh, important, just reflecting on your um, what you two are talking about, is to keep in mind that when people are giving this PTSD diagnosis, you know, they're often, I think they often think they're doing the benefit, the the veteran uh, uh, kindness by making them eligible for service connection, right? There's no, there's no service connection for moral injury. Right. It's considered an adjunctive, you know, um, treatment that can help for the, you know, the pieces that the exposure therapy doesn't get at, right? These kinds of things. So if we want to um, take things like your conceptual model seriously, we also have to think differently about things like um, disability benefits, compensation, the whole kind of apparatus that supports uh, a limited conceptualization, as well as you know the medical and scientific models that that underlie these interventions. And I'm. I'm optimistic that, you know, the insights of of people doing other kinds of work and creating other kinds of conceptualizations like um, Mary Catherine is working on can lead us to um, more holistic treatments. But I think it's also important to remember how how difficult it is to make those scientific, um, uh, to make those things considered scientifically sound and, um, 
and get institutions, right, not just us talking about what would be better, to take them up. And I know there's people doing all kinds of interesting things to try to work, uh, you know, at the margins. I know some therapists who they'll say they're doing exposure therapy just because they got um, their, their patient to talk about what happened. They may do that in a lot of different ways and just say, oh, it was exposure. But um, if that stuff falls outside of the way that we're actually making knowledge, you know, it's might be helping some people, but it's not going to change the system. And, and we really have to rethink the system. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm all about rethinking systems. <laughs> so uh, Mary Catherine, some final thoughts? Yeah, just um, going on that, I think that we're going to see some more changes in the next DSM. I think moral injury will appear. Um, and I think that... Um, I know that uh, um, David, no, sorry, Russell Carr went to um, Congress and talked about the importance of creating phenomenologically based um, treatment methods for um, for veterans. So I think that there's stuff that's happening that's that's real, and it's part of the reason why I did a big research study because it's like big numbers get you attention. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, but then in terms of just one last thing, I think that um, one of the ways that I want to rethink things theoretically um, for the benefit of people who are traumatized is that um, I think that something that I've really been astounded by in my research of veterans and talking to veterans and talking to people who have encountered trauma in their lives is what I thought about theoretically, but then saw in really vivid color talking to people, which is that um, these responses, these symptoms are rooted in, an, you know, this, this adaptive urge to survive, which means that on, on a really essential, you know, foundational level, PTSD comes from strength, not weakness. And I think that we need to rethink that on every level so that people who have PTSD or people who get this diagnosis, if we stick with this medical model, um, can shake that shame because I think that's a major barrier for, um, wellness. So, and, and that's interesting and I'll, uh, and again, that sounds like an entire show in and of itself, <laughs> but the idea that a veteran uh, for whatever reason decided to step forward and put themselves in a situation in which, um, they were potentially traumatized, that was an initial strength of theirs. Right. Um, that and that all a... of their symptoms are come from, like we were talking about before, like this, what kept them alive, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, That's awesome. No, that is, that is uh, and, and I'm going to chew on that. I, I definitely want to have each of you back for your own show um, <laughs> because, uh, Marissa, just the, the concepts you were talking about, about how we society display um, uh, display the message. Uh, that sounds like something I would definitely like to get into further. And then Mary Catherine, I didn't even talk about the the yoga and the embodied uh, uh, trauma and everything else that you were doing, um, because that, in in my mind, it's a, a huge aspect. Um, yoga and in, in just these embodied interventions as adjunctive to therapy, um, mm-hmm. rather than either their standalone, hey, just go ride horses and you'll feel better, um, mm-hmm. uh, but really having this integrated piece. And so I, I, I really enjoyed having you both on, um, and then I enjoyed it so much I'd like to have each of you on at some point in the future. 
Now, um, I'd like for each of you to, if, if someone were more interested to reach out to you to get more information about the work that you're currently doing, um, or really to maybe um, have a, a conversation about the, um, uh, the, the things that you've been talking about, Mary Catherine, how can people get a hold of you? Um, email is the best way. Um, so I have a, an email address through ODU, just M-Y-M-C-D-O-N-A at odu.edu, M-Y McDonough, like my Sharona. <laughs> so I'll, I'll make sure that, that that email, I probably, I might link to my Sharona in the, the, the uh, <laughs> show notes, but, uh, but I'll make sure that that email uh, is in the show okay. notes. And, and Marissa, for you? Yeah, same. My university email is a great way to get in touch with me. Um, and it's my my last name, Brandt, B-R-A-N-D-T, M7 at msu.edu. Okay, I really want to thank you both for, for coming on the show and, uh, and, and giving us your insights. Thank you so much. This was a great, great, great chat. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to listen to that great episode with Dr. Mary Catherine McDonald and Dr. Marissa Brandt talking about PTSD. You can find the show notes on this show and many of the things we talked about at either changerpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com looking for episode HST028. This is the fourth episode of Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp, a series brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network and the Headspace and Timing Podcast. If you're a veteran or service member, the family member of one, or support veterans in any way, then this series is designed to help you understand more about veteran mental health. If you're just now getting into the series, go back and check out episode HST025 where we introduce the concept of looking beyond PTSD and TBI in regards to veteran mental health. Make sure you subscribe to the Change Your POV Podcast Network on your podcast player of choice and sign up for updates at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. We would love to hear your feedback regarding this series and all of the shows in the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You can do so by visiting our Facebook group, leaving a comment, or review on iTunes. Remember, veteran mental health and wellness is the basis of a successful post-military life and one that all who answered our nation's call to serve deserves. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're not alone, ever. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. 
By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.